This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of the Great Ormond Street Pediatric Bioethics Podcast. I'm delighted that our guest today is someone I've got to know over the last couple of years for, for reasons that are a little bit challenging. But Jim Down is an adult intensive care doctor at University College Hospital London over the road from Great Ormond Street but also a polymath. He writes books for a living these days. And so I think one of the things I want to really talk to Jim about is his latest book called Life in the Balance. But Jim, welcome. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and your background? Yeah. So I'm an anaesthetist intensivist, very much adult, I'm afraid, at UCH. I've trained in London and started at UCH back in 2005. Went into management for a little bit, but then realized that I wanted to focus on being a clinician. And then about five or six years ago, became interested in writing and initially wrote some fiction and a play. And then when we met in the unfortunate circumstances of the pandemic, I kept a diary of that. And that was the first book I published. And then just recently I published another, which is much more broadly about my sort of career in intensive care really focus on all the things that have puzzled, confused, and interested me, I suppose, based around cases and and then the impacts the jobs had on me, I guess. Yeah, we'll definitely come back to that because I think that's, there's a very honest reflection through the book, which is, is very, very, um, I would say unusual, particularly in the ICU sphere. But I, I'll just go back to a paragraph I, I thoroughly enjoyed. And I, as I said to you earlier, I had flashbacks of my early medical career in this as well. But um. One of the reasons you went into ICU initially was the idea when we were junior doctors that the intensivists would swoop down and fix our patients when we were struggling. And uh, there's a word here that the, the intensivists exuded complete certainty, competence and knowledge in intensive care. And they were intensive care Jedis, all-knowing and all-powerful. And, and you wanted to join that tribe because when they said a patient was unsavable, that patient was unsavable. But they weren't arrogant. They wore their power lightly with humility and compassion, which... I think it's a lovely line, but the bit I really want to focus on is, is where you go to next, which is, you know, having done all your ICU stuff, it was all very good, but actually the more gray areas and ethical decision-making and trying to find out what to do when really things aren't so certain is, is really what you've become more interested in. Could you uh, go into that a bit for me? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think there's a couple of aspects, aren't there? I think when I, when I was younger, I, I thought it would all become clear as I, as I tried to point out. And also there was an element where, and this is a bit different, I think in pediatrics, well, obviously different in pediatrics, but as a adult intensivist, initially the, the, the patients feel quite removed from you because they're generally older or incredibly unlucky. So you kind of feel at distance, you feel very sorry for them, but you don't feel, you know, that could be me or, or not to the same extent. And, and uh, so that was one aspect that changed as I got older and that suddenly they were much more like me and much more relatable. And then that combined with this, with more and more cases that surprised me. So that thing where you're, you know, you're pretty sure this person is, is not going to get better and they do. And then that really throws it up in the air. And the more I've done, the, the more that's become the case. Mm. And then you're into this whole world of, you know, what level of, chance should we should we keep going with someone you know for so so what is it you know if, if they've got a two percent chance of surviving is should we continue and what 
what level of survival makes a life worth living. You know, things that when I was 20 would have, I would have felt life wasn't worth living. And now, you know, that wouldn't be such a, a miserable life. So all those, all those aspects of it become more and more fuzzy, I think. Mm. And, and that idea about being the all knowing, all powerful, you know, intensive care Jedi, it dissolves, I think, as you get older, because you realize that things are much less clear, which makes it more interesting, I think, philosophically, but also makes decisions more difficult. And that is where the balance comes in for me now, personally, is that issue about nothing is, is clear, nothing is black and white, but you've still got to make decisions. You've still got to act every day because you know, you've still got to run a unit and you've still got to use your resources. So it's that I find fascinating, I have to say. Thank you. I, I think the other thing that is really linked to that, but I think is very brave in the book. And, and you talk about, you know, your personal anxiety about decision making, particularly difficult decision making, but also how, how working in ICU over this time, one, ICU has changed, that's for sure. Mm. But also you have changed. And how the effect of ICU on, on you as an individual, but also you know, maturing, having family and, and, and other things are, are things that change us all as well, growing and aging. But maybe more specifically, how working in ICU in this kind of high tech, intensive care environment where the human elements are getting better, I think, as the years go by, the compassion and thoughtfulness were always there. But I think they're getting better. I think we're getting better at it, how we work with very sick people and their families. But I'm interested in how things have changed for you and, and you have been changed. Could you go into that? Yes. So, I mean, I, I, it's going to sound a bit of a cliche, but, but I, I, I promise it isn't. In that when I was younger, I remember thinking if I was a patient, I'd just want the most technically skilled doctors. You know, I'd want the person who'd read all the books who had brilliant hands or whatever it was. But more recently, I've realized that this, you know, the thing we all learned at medical school about how important compassion was and, and communication and all those things that I slightly, I thought, yes, that's lovely, but it's very much second importance to me. But I've now realized how much difference those things make. And part of that actually has been from talking to relatives, because in IC, we certainly in, in my IC, we don't tend to see people once they leave the unit very much. But having written the book, I've had to go and get consent from patients and, and relatives six months, you know, a year down the line. And and the amount, the, the moments, uh, you know, those discussions we have in the relatives' rooms, how much, how important they are to patients, how much they remember every word, how it made them feel, mm. all those kind of things. You suddenly realise how vital that is, whether it's good news or bad news. You know, it can really change a relative's memory of 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 their of the passing of their loved one or a, a patient's experience of the obviously a frightening time. So I've really been struck by that. And I think then along with that, the responsibility has has sort of become heavier on me, sat on me more heavily. And I've found it, you know, I found each decision more difficult. And I think, I mean, towards the end of the book, I describe a, a time where eventually I just had to stop for a period because I was, you know, one case just sort of mm. just pulled me out. I had to stop because I, I felt I'd got something wrong. And and I went into sort of anxiety, depression, ruminating type mode. And it was then that I realized that 
the the sort of buildup of those decisions. I think along with the pandemic and and the, the size of the pandemic, but I think really the way each decision just built more and more, and I became more and more affected by them. And then finally, just you know, just too much. My defense. I mean, I think I described my defenses were just gradually worn away until there weren't any. And I had to really stop and sit back and, and have a look at it. And, and one of the things, I, one colleague said to me, well, how do you deal with uncertainty? And it seems like such an obvious thing, but it, but it was really, it really struck a chord with me because, of course, that's what we're having to deal with all the time with these things. And, you know, dealing with uncertainty about your own life is one thing, but, but, but making decisions, uncertain decisions about someone else's life, I think, wears you down. So that was the big lesson that I've been trying to, to learn since I suppose yeah there's, there's kind of an erosion isn't there over time of your your defenses the way you can keep doing this job and you've seen colleagues that one case that can just suddenly change your thoughts have kind of come on the build-up of lots of other stuff over time so yeah it's dealt with beautifully in the book and it's obviously I'm very keen for it to sell as many copies as possible <laughs> me too I have no me f- too but I have to say, if I was an ICU doctor or anyone involved with that sort of area, it really is a book to read. You start off at the beginning, but I'm going to try and make things a little bit lighter now. Hmm. The story of, of the, the house officer, and this is, I think every doctor would say that rings true. The tale of, uh, and without spoiling the book for anyone, because there are no spoilers here, but someone forgetting something that's very important. And what I think was very interesting was you were very harsh on yourself, which I know is a trait. But, you know, you have a million other things going on. And I, the bit I absolutely remember, you talk about results slips. And these are things that, for those who haven't worked in hospital, you used to get, rather than on the computerised system we now have, every single test every patient had would come back on a result slip. And you'd have to go through that a week later, maybe, as a junior doctor, and initial your name saying, I've checked this and there's nothing important. Trying to filter out what might be important was just awful. Trying to think, you know, what what does this mean? And the one that had something important on there, it was incredibly challenging. But also the systems that were around there were not great. And I guess that the other thing that I I really enjoyed was your tales of, I think, your father's time as a a house officer compared to yours and the difference of, you know, what living in a hospital meant in the 50s and 60s with meals provided all the time. I'm sure our junior doctors today won't, have anything like that anywhere <laughs> yeah no i mean i think that's it, it's so that case i mean it's it's the one that stood out to me where it really dawned on me that the main thing about the shift from being a medical student where it was just lots of information that was you know that's just endless information but but what was they didn't really in those days seem to pick out this is the vital thing, you know, this is the vital one thing I want you to take away from this lecture. It was just reams of illnesses and diseases and anatomy and whatever it was. And and then, of course, when you qualify, the thing you I think that you learn in the first year or two is really sifting out the the important stuff. You know, this this you have to act on. And that was my moment at that, I suppose. But at the time, it was just, as you say, it was, it was one of, of loads of different results. And I'd done that thing I talk about where I rushed to a, you know, to a senior colleague going, look at this, it's, this is, there's some abnormality here. And they went, yeah, whatever. And so you, it's very confusing until, you know, it gradually clears in your head what are the important things. As simple as, as recognizing a sick patient, that kind of thing. But I think you only get that through experience. I, I think it's better now, but 
But yeah, and I remember that awful feeling of, oh, I've really messed up here. And then, yeah, and, and as you said, we were still working on call system. We still went to sort of our rooms, and, but we weren't that well looked after, were we? Whereas my dad was served beer and, and someone carved the roast. I know. And that's in 20 odd years the change came. Yeah. Yeah. This sounds like, a, you know, we're not doing when I were a lad type stuff. There was very little that could be done in the 50s and 60s for people who got sick overnight, right? Whereas yeah, no, and I'm definitely not doing that in my day thing. I mean, I I feel very, I mean, I feel very much for the junior doctors of today. I think they have a very tough time, but that's probably not a discussion for today. It, it probably, well, yeah, that's <laughs> at the moment, you're, you're right. But I, I, yeah, they're still great people. It's just a different system, isn't it? Change is inevitable, I think. Maybe we could just take you back. And I, I want to go back to the very first thing in the book, which is available in all good booksellers, by the way. I think... We, we're an ethics podcast thinking about that sort of area of medicine and life, really. And I thought the initial disclaimer was interesting. And you've touched on going to see people in their homes, I presume, to ask their permission to include them in the books, I guess. And then anonymizing some other patients, maybe because it was 20 odd years ago, maybe. Mm. So I'm fascinated in that, that process, because how do you actually approach families bereaved families to, to talk about their loved one in a book and, and patients themselves and I guess the other thing you know your trust legal team who I mean you know, NHS trust legal teams are fabulous so big plug for them they do a mm. job but they're risk averse right because they have to be so how does that work because I'm fascinated as somebody who's not really thought about that much how you would think about yeah so so the first thing to say is probably is the most stressful thing about writing the book for me but also, in the end, the most rewarding in many ways, because as I said, it, it gave me an insight into what both recovering from critical illness and grief, you know, the, the longer term effects of grief, particularly around the pandemic. So with the first book I wrote about the pandemic, the families I approached were families I'd spoken to during the illness. So, and, and in fact, one of them, and one of them is really, for me, a lovely story in that well, it's not a lovely story, it's a very sad story that a, a young man who, who died at UCH and his wife couldn't come in because she had asthma. So I only met her through an iPad like we had many people. And anyway, he was in a long time and eventually, very sadly, he died. And I contacted her afterwards and she was incredibly supportive and lovely and actually wrote a bit for the afterword of the book about him. But I still didn't meet her. And it turns out she's a theatre designer and she, she got me into a play to, that she put on. And I only met her when we launched the second book and she came to the launch because finally we were allowed to meet face to face. So that was really lovely. And I had a few like that. One person said no and was very interesting in that they said there were so many reminders of COVID. It was so on the news. Everything seemed to remind them of their mum and they just didn't want to have another thing to remind them, which was very reasonable. And lots of the survivors were extraordinary because, of course, we'd seen them, you know, you, you as well had seen them in such a bad way for so long. And some of them were just back to normal, you know, three months later. It was extraordinary. So that was, that was all good. And then other people, I've merged stories so they're completely unrecognizable. And the, the level the lawyers tell you is you have to, you know, that person shouldn't be able to recognize themselves. So that's, you know, it's slightly open-ended, but but I've been quite careful to change an awful lot of characteristics. And, this, you know, the stories become two different stories put together, if you like. So 
one personality, perhaps with one diagnosis, a different diagnosis or whatever, to get across a key point. So they're all real, but they're, some of them emerged. And then the publishers have lawyers who go through it with a fine tooth comb and pick up any concerns they have. But I suppose like everything, it's, you, you know, you work very hard to make it watertight, but you know, still in the back of my head, there's always a niggle. I mean, in the first book, someone said, one person said, oh, I recognize that patient. And it wasn't a patient that we'd had at that ICU. So <laughs> there's always that worry that someone's going to falsely recognize themselves, I suppose. Thank you. That's really interesting. Well, let's, let's wander there. COVID time. Um, mm. Awful, horrible. I mean, I, so I met Jim properly. A group of us from Great Ormond Street, pediatric intensivists, went over and became adult intensive care. People on their rota over there. And yeah, I, I have to say, you know, you sit back and see what people went through and knowing what people went through, there was still a camaraderie and, and the amazing functionality of that unit. I mean, I sat there in May days thinking, how has this been done? What's going on? And I, I thought, you know, the nurses particularly, physios, other people, but the care of the patients was exemplary, given the overwhelming situation that was going on. But I, I guess, you know, there's lots of practical things people did, lots of structural things. But I guess the kind of afterwards, it was kind of back on and back to doing ICU again. And what what's it felt like to go back into, you know, trying to get back to normality, if you can call it that, after that experience? And the time for reflection for people in, in the ICU, particularly, I'm interested in that. Yeah, it's very, it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think you're right. I think, you know, a thing like you guys coming over and just becoming part of our team, I mean, that was extraordinary. And we don't get that kind of thing in normal life, do we? So although it was, as I totally agree, it was awful, the sort of level of tragedy and also the, the that awful thing about trying to, work out what to do with a disease you've never seen before, which seemed to behave in such an abnormal, unpredictable way. I, I think we all found that very stressful. But as you say, the level of working together, pulling together camaraderie, the flattening of hierarchy, mm. you know, the flattening of barriers between nurses and doctors and, you know, seeing a retired cardiologist working as a nursing assistant, th those things are, ex you know, are amazing. And, and I think readjusting was difficult. I've been thinking about this a bit recently because everyone talks about, of course, oh, well, we'll need some downtime. And I remember the problem was you, you can't really do that. One, because the, it just sort of petered away. It never, you know, there wasn't a day when they said, right, it's all over now, yeah. <laughs> back to normal. And secondly, of course, that, you know, there's a massive backlog of work to do. So we've all kind of just merged back into normal life. And I think in a way, I had to have that period of, of just coming to a, hitting a brick wall. Then I did stop and, and recalibrate. And that was kind of necessary. And I think it, you know, I hope that other people have, have had the chance to do that a bit. Because, for instance, a, a colleague that you, I won't say the name, but he, I asked him how he was. And he said, no, I'm fine, but I haven't slept beyond 3 a.m. for six months. <laughs> And I thought, well, that's not fine, you know, and I just, I think we're all probably getting back to normal now, but yeah. you do worry about the sort of hidden casualties. For sure, for sure. And I think that's one of those things that, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's almost difficult to talk about that now because people have a, 
almost the attitude of the, the, the family you approach, which is completely understandable that that was awful, it's terrible, it's done. I don't want to think about it anymore. Mm. I want to get on and carry on. And, you know, the one thing about the NHS, which of course we both think is wonderful, but is, is that you have to carry on because there's always the next patient. And there are so many people who didn't get treatment during COVID that we now have a duty to try and get sorted out. And so there is that kind of the work keeps coming. So I'm building up to, I'm being very honest now, and I haven't read the entire book yet. I'm three quarters through, actually. <laughs> but even reading the chapters as an old intensivist induced a tachycardia in me. But not, I don't think for the reason people will think. The bit that got me was capacity. I'm sounding like, oh my God, capacity. Mm. We haven't got enough ICU beds to get the patients in. And it's, it's a never-ending story, that, isn't it? And that's wherever you work, any country, there's different funding different numbers of ICU beds, but particularly in, in the UK, there's an issue with ICU and other capacity in the system. And I know we, we you know, this is not a, a talk about strikes and what's going on in society, but there are lots of things affecting our ability to do our work at the moment for good or ill. And I, I guess that's really a challenge. And I, I'm not sure unless, you know, we, we probably should be honest and say there have been quite difficult cuts in the NHS recently. And hmm. What do we do about capacity? We've got more demand and we don't really have a sustained increase in ICU bed numbers. It, the pandemic increase was transient for sure. So what is it we can do in the setting of increasing demand and party here? I mean, I, I come from a pediatric ICU background, but there are many more people living on ICU level technology from 30 years ago in their houses, long-term ventilation, other stuff. And when they get sick, they come into ICU. So. We have increased demand, right? Mm. So what are we going to do, Jim? Well, thanks for that easy question. Yeah, I mean, I, I really wanted to write that chapter about, you know, what to do about the bed base that day and just take someone through it because it's such a big part of our yeah. job. And, and it's, you know, it's not the glamorous sort of, you know, ER thing, but we spend a lot of time, and I'm sure you do too, feeling stressed about how we're going to get everyone in, who we're going to take, what operations are going to be cancelled. Can we move that patient out? Is it too risky? Should we move someone out of the hospital? These things, when you're on call, we must, I don't know, I, I should think two or three hours are spent at least just solidly trying to work out who's going to go where and, and who who's not. And of course, those throw up big ethical issues because we tend you know you've got to make quick decisions but the impact down the line is difficult to work out in real time and then of course you've got I mean I again I, I sort of try to go into it that thing about do you put off an elective case who you might reduce their chance to survive from 90 percent to 80 percent or do you pull out on someone whose chance goes from 10 percent to 0 percent you know, it's much easier to do the first one because it sort of doesn't, you know, the second one's so definite. But have we got all that worked out? I think it's really hard. And is ICU the best, you know, how much budget, how much percentage of the NHS budget should it, should we give it? I, I don't think we've even begun to really work that out. So I, yeah, I've got a lot more questions than answers. I don't, I don't know the answer. And the other issue is, is, of course, who should make these decisions? Is it us or is it the patients or is it should there be stronger government edicts on what you can and can't admit and for how long, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, these are really difficult questions. 
But I suppose my main point is that we haven't really grasped them apart from on a day-to-day ad hoc basis as far as I can see. Yeah, and that's almost one of the things that COVID exposed quite quickly, I think. The decision-making, ultimately, despite lots of people writing very nice guidelines and talking about government rationing and all this kind of stuff. At the end of the day, it's people on the floor are making decisions. And I guess, I think hopefully reading your books, people will realise that people are trying to do the right thing and making decisions in the right way. That's the key thing I think that I hope can reassure people that when hard decisions need to be made, they are being made in a thoughtful, compassionate way, thinking about the people they affect most, which are our patients and their families. But there are tough decisions still to be made. And I, I guess my slight, not anger, that's not the right term, but I, I worry sometimes that those decisions don't need to be quite so tough and a little bit more resource might enable us to do a lot more work with, with what we do. But maybe that's overly simplistic. I mean, I think, I know I agree with you. And I would say that, to be fair, COVID, one of the, well, two positive legacies for, for us where I am is is we have got a, a better bed base and we have got a, a better flexibility to to flex up you know if we were hit by something again whether we have the staff for that is is obviously a, another big question the other thing that i that i really like that came out of covid was well in covid it was the three wise people you know making so you never made a decision without two colleagues which was i think was really good for patients and for us. And I think it's left us much more willing to, or we much more commonly discuss the difficult decisions with colleagues now, which I think can only be a good thing. But yeah, it's very difficult, isn't it? I mean, it's also opened that, you know, it's, it's perhaps made us more willing to talk about these difficult decisions, but yeah, I I haven't got the answer, obviously. We actually, you know, H1N1 three wise person stuff was kind of done via our children's transport service communication network for for hospitals around the london area and it's that kind of you know the support of each other that's the other thing I, i'm going there because i'm adding to your legacies of covid I, I saw really good network working between the adult icus that i don't think i'd quite been maybe i wasn't aware of it before but it certainly was very impressive how people work together to try and take great numbers of patients in a better direction. And I thought, you know, sometimes we work in our hospitals and we don't really think outside our own small area, even inside the hospital, but between hospitals that can be even tougher. And I thought that kind of ICU network approach was another hopefully good legacy. I couldn't agree with you more. It was a massive step forward. We've talked about networks for years and this really made them real. And what that I think does brilliantly is take away that silo thing where you're, you know, naturally you feel protective of your, I mean, we obviously transferred people between hospitals for capacity, but you always feel slightly more protective of your own patients because they're in front of you. And what I think the networks did was take that away. And and it didn't matter where you were, you had, we were working out what to do as a network. And I completely agree. It, It was transformative. Thank you, Jim. That's been excellent. Thank you so much. And just to reiterate, Jim's retirement plan is for my life in the balance and life support is too, but available in all good bookstores. It's the worst retirement plan in history at the moment. I had that from a lady called Ellie 
Heli Nocte, Heli Updale, who was a children's author on our ethics committee years ago. And uh, I was going, oh, it, must, you know, it must be great making money from, but no, it's not as good as people who don't write books think it is, is it? Yeah. What's, what's the next? I'll leave you with one question. What's the next book title going to be? Oh, goodness. Well, I'm trying to write a, a fiction called Cut, but at the moment it's very much in the planning stage, so we'll have to see. Thanks. <laughs> Take care. Cheers. Thanks, Jack. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gosh Bioethics podcast. We would love to get your feedback on the episode, as well as suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear about. You can find a link to the feedback survey in the description for the episode. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn, or you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.